Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about creativity, why we're more inclined to believe ourselves, conspiracy theories, and why one parent thinks pandemic has actually been good for her family. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. everyone welcome to the common good my name is ian simpkins along with brian Fromm. find us on facebook the common good radio show twitter and instagram at common good talk wherever it is you get your podcast and at 1160hope.com slash the common good i want to spend the next couple of minutes brian talking about conspiracy theories because i feel like that's been peppered in a couple of times these last few weeks Uh, but before we dive into that topic though Uh, We have some really tragic, unfortunate news to share. Why don't you let people know what's going on? Yeah, a pastor uh, that you and I both uh, have respected and read often by the name of Darren Patrick. In fact, we played some audio from Darren just last week here on the show. And uh, we were both sharing that on Twitter. You could tell somebody had passed away, but nobody was really saying who. And then just right before we started the show, we came to find out and get confirmed that Darren Patrick passed away uh, yesterday, I believe, which... I've never met the guy, but yet you still feel like you know him, right? I've listened to a lot of his sermons, right. read books, but also follow on Twitter, and your heart is just broken. It's just a gut punch, I think, is yeah. the phrase you used. Married, um, kids. He had a, spe- a huge church, a spectacular fall, and you and I have discussed multiple times that he's somebody that we've really respected mm-hmm. in how he's gone about the restoration process up until, right. obviously, this tragedy he was a teaching pastor at Seacoast Church with Jeff Surratt or Greg Surratt over in um, South Carolina. So uh, I don't, you know, don't want to speculate on details, but what a tragedy. And for mostly for a family, but also just a, yet another tragedy for the pastor world, the evangelical world here. Yeah. And we'll we'll spend some time over the weekend getting some of the details and probably talk about it on Monday. But I, I did want to at least just begin the show recognizing sharing our grief our prayers for the family for the church and uh we would invite you encourage you even to to do the same in the midst of all the craziness this is still just incredibly heartbreaking and uh brian and i are both kind of heartbroken um i wanted to talk a little bit about conspiracy theories and i i again plopped a whole bunch of links in our uh our little rundown there but uh i'm curious is there is there one in particular that stands out to you uh, with regards to what it looks like, we've been hearing a lot of people talking about this pandemic. Uh, I've, I've personally got a number of emails and text messages from people like, hey, should we believe this? Is this legitimate? Have, have right. you had people in your church kind of interacting at the same level? Uh, absolutely. Uh, really? I, I saw multiple people from my church share it on Facebook the other day. Okay. Um, uh, I actually watched it because I was like, all right, I'm going to I'm going to take a look at this just to see it. And then yeah. not surprisingly, then the next day, my Facebook feed was full of the people refuting pandemic. Um, but it is just this whole um, people's desires to spread ideas of what's going on. And I think, right. um, you know, we shared that Stetzer article on Christianity Today, I believe last week we talked about it, but. You know, like this article you, you shared with us about why do people cling to conspiracy theories like pandemic on at, uh, at Forbes, uh, Forbes dot com uh, that basically uh, says this, you know, people buy into conspiracy theories because it gives them something that they can control and it gives an explanation to the things that are uh, unexplainable. Right. Like we yeah. want to be able to explain how COVID-19 started, where it came from, how it's working. And that in some ways 
it makes us feel a little better to think there's some big conspiracy behind it other than it's just this virus that's raging right now. Right. Uh, And so, yeah, I've been just cards on the table. I'm not a conspiracy theorist. um, And I've been discouraged by the number of people um, who have either bought into pandemic or who are spewing other things online right now about, you know, what's going on with the virus or what's really going on behind Governor Pritzker's Restore Illinois plan. Like, I don't like his plan and I think there's real problems with it, but I don't yeah. think there's a conspiracy behind it. And so it does become discouraging when you just start to see all these conspiracies that people spew. But I think the real reason behind it is because people want an explanation for things when there isn't always an easy explanation. Right. Let me let me share a couple of tweets that I saw that I thought were kind of helpful. So DL Mayfield said people believe conspiracy theories because it is psychologically easier to believe a singular and unlikely narrative rather than engage in a hard and complicated reality where your own long-term participation is needed. As an American evangelical, I was raised in this kind of thinking in several different areas. Climate change was a hoax. The medical establishment could not be trusted. Abuse allegations against religious leaders was the work of Satan. Each one has a simplistic, almost knee-jerk reaction answer to an incredibly complicated issue. Tie that together with theology and an individualistic culture, and you have a recipe for a deep detachment from long-term efforts to work toward the common good. And then another tweet thread from uh, a brilliant professor named Chris Green. He wrote, conspiracy theories are needed when you're socialized to question every authority but your own. And this is why many who are quick to buy into conspiracy theories prove entirely unable to consider that the systemic nature of racism and sexism. I realize I realized one day that I was expected to distrust, quote, the government, but never to question, quote, America. And in the same way, I was expected to distrust the church's tradition, but never to question, quote, the Bible. And slowly it started to dawn on me all of the energy spent in criticizing, but not truly critiquing, of course, that which seemed wrong to me was a mechanism of denial and self-preservation. And as should be obvious, this is not about individualism. We have never believed in individual individualism. It's always been a myth in use of the preservation of our remnant, which alone is faithful, which are both super intriguing perspectives. And we don't have a ton of time left. If you will let me, there's another blog that I posted from Brian Haynes. Right. And he, the headline simply is conspiracy theories among Christians. And he said, you know, these are, they're always birthed in fear this is all very convoluted at the grassroots level because people don't trust leaders for good and bad reasons. So he says, here are my thoughts in short form. And he just offered seven quick thoughts that I'll, if you're, if that's okay, I'll just, I'll just share with, share them quickly yeah. and encourage people to go to the Facebook page to read the articles and the tweets for themselves. Cause I think it's, I think it's really helpful, but he says, number one, the virus is real. We Christ followers should do our best to be responsible citizens out of obedience to God who teaches us to pray for and submit to our leaders as far as possible without disobeying God. We also live in communities with people we call our neighbors. We are to love relentlessly. So we follow guidelines to love and protect others. Number two, the virus could have been manufactured in a lab in Wuhan, or it could have been a natural, viral, perfect storm. Who knows at this point? Don't focus on conspiracy. Whichever one you are focused on, focus on kingdom. Number three, God is using all of this for his glory and for our good. Trust him to quote Tom Foolery. Sometimes you have to get sick, my boy, before you start feeling better. Number four, it's obvious who is walking by faith in a biblical way in this season. Look for love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Number five, within American Christendom, there appears to be a divide driven by political alliance and personal economic interest. 
Number six, according to the Bible, we live in the end times, but time is relative to our very limited perspective and God is above time. And number seven, our role, whether it is our last day on earth or the last day of the earth, is to press into mission. We love God and we love people and point everyone to Jesus in love. So again, I realize we're almost out of time. Anything from what I just read, either those tweets or that blog, like really kind of jump out at you as the punctuation of this conversation? Yeah, I thought it was interesting that he said, you know, he... Neither, none of them, and especially the Haynes one, he didn't say conspiracy theories never happen, that they're never right. true. Right. He just said it's not the best use of our time. And I really love that perspective. He even says later, he says, conspiracy theories are a waste of time and energy for the follower of Christ. And he gives the reasons why. But, um, and, and so that's where I'd go. You might be out there being like, oh, you're blind for never thinking that things aren't like they seem. I'm not even saying that. I just don't think it's the best use of our time. Hmm. And for some reason, uh, uh, so many of us get obsessed with them. And, and I think especially as Christians, we've got to be really careful about that and focus more on what's a good use of our time. Well, this is, again, a perfect example of a topic way too big for just one segment. So I would encourage you head to the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. We posted all of these tweets and these articles. We would really, really love to know what you think. Maybe this will bleed into next week and we'll talk about it a little bit more because I know, like the author said, this is a complicated, convoluted issue. And uh, we would love for this to be a space to dialogue. Coming up next, here's a headline. Dunning-Kruger effect. Why people talk about things they know nothing about. Uh-huh. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. Happy Friday. Happy almost Mother's Day weekend. You got big plans, by the way, Brian. It's it's hard to celebrate amidst is the quarantine, hard. isn't it? It is hard. And uh, the, the struggle for me for Mother's Day is my wife's birthday is always really close to it. So it's always right. this, when does the gifts come? But uh, we got some stuff up our sleeves for Mother's Day. Uh, okay. Like you said, it's weird to be in this situation, uh, but we've got some stuff. I'm excited. How about you? Oh, I, um, to a fault, love orchestrating big, absurd things like this for holidays. Again, oh, really? to a fault. This is not a humble brag. It legitimately is like a, this this was nice. Um, could you do the dishes, though? Like, <laughs> Which I'm so I'm so grateful for that perspective because my you know my wife's like I just want to spend time with you guys you know so I uh, I'm trying to ratchet it back a little bit but still kind of you know give honor to the day and and I do kind of want to say this too because I know that for some people this weekend is going to be filled with joy and happiness but for other people for a whole host of reasons it's also filled with a lot of sadness that's right and a lot of grief and one of the things that I've I've always tried to say every Mother's Day is that mothering is not solely an act of biology. There's a whole lot of women who have been like spiritual mamas to me, who have cared for me and cared for our family and poured into us and mentored us. So for all the mamas, whether you're joyful or grieving or somewhere in between, uh, we honor you. We're grateful for you. And uh, we hope that you feel really loved and blessed this weekend. Right. Uh, I want to mention quickly, you can go to the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show, 1160hope.com, and wherever it is you get your podcasts, subscribing, rating, reviewing, all that is, it's really probably the best Mother's Day gift you could give is <laughs> yes, subscribing that loved one to our podcast without them knowing. Just go ahead and get in their phone and uh, subscribe, rate, review. That would help us out a whole ton. Um, this next article is an example of something that we've talked about but maybe not named have we ever actually used the phrase dunning-kruger effect on the show before 
Uh, I'm a hundred percent sure we have not because I just learned about it from this article. Oh, you did. Okay, great. So here it is. Yeah. Dunning Kruger effect. Why people talk about things they know nothing about. Why don't you share your newfound insight, Brian? Yeah, it says the Dunning Kruger effect can be summed up in one sentence. The less we know, the more we think we know. Uh-huh. It is a cognitive bias with what people with fewer skills, abilities, and knowledge tend to overstate those same abilities and knowledge. As a result, they tend to become uh, ultra, ultra crepidarian people who express opinions about everything they hear without knowing anything, but they think they know a lot more than the others. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. The problem is that the victims of the Dunning-Kruger effect do not just merely give an opinion or suggestion, but try to impose mm. their ideas as if they were absolute truths, making uh, look the others as incompetent or ignorant. Of course, dealing with these people is not easy. They tend to have very rigid thinking. So, I totally get that. I never knew this name for it, but man, this is something that's really going around right now with the coronavirus. <laughs> well, that's kind of why I wanted to talk about it. I think maybe we did a sermon on this a few years ago or something because I'm okay. at least familiar with the phrase. I want to read a little further here, though, because yep. here's, here's the subheading. Uh, the criminal who tried to make himself invisible with lemon juice. In the mid-1990s in Pittsburgh uh, happened something that we might call surprising. A 44-year-old man robbed two banks in full day with no mask to cover his face and protect his identity. Obviously, the criminal adventure had a very short life as the man was immediately arrested. After being arrested, MacArthur Wheeler, that's his name, confessed to having applied lemon juice on his face that would make it invisible to cameras. But if I put uh, but if I put on lemon juice was his answer when he was arrested. I think that might be a typo, but I put the lemon. It doesn't matter. Later, it was discovered that the idea of the lemon juice was a suggestion of a two uh, of two of Wheeler's friends who jokingly said they would attack a bank using this technique to avoid being recognized. Wheeler tested the suggestion, applied lemon juice to his face, and took a photo where he could not see his face. Probably it was due to uh, a wrong shot, but that test was definitive for Wheeler, oh, wow. who decided to complete the uh, genial plan. Uh, the story reached Cornell University, where the professor of social psychology, David Dunning, uh, could not believe what had happened. So he wondered, is it possible that my incompetence prevents me from seeing this same incompetence? That was how he quickly went to work with his colleague, Justin Kruger. What they discovered, though, uh, through a long series of experiments, left them even more surprised. So this article goes on to talk about the study that gave rise to the Dunning-Kruger effect. Does knowing anything about this effect help you in thinking through how you engage with people who, uh, who might be suffering from some version of this online, or does this make it just as complicated? Like, how do you, how does this information change the way that you think about social interactions? So it does confirm for me that, that there are people who act this way, right? (laughs) Right. Right. Like I'm not crazy thinking that, and it causes you to look at the mirror yourself and go, where am I guilty of this? Right. Now I do wish I could send this article or this link to uh, certain people. And I know I can't do that. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, just be curious to know what you think of this article. Exactly. You you see anything, anything in there, but (laughs) anything at all. Send them a lemon. Yeah. They go on to say these psychologists uh, from the study, concluded that incompetent people in a certain area of knowledge, uh, A, cannot detect and recognize their incompetence, and B, usually don't recognize the competence of others. And I think that's a really important point here. Because, man, how many times have you been talking to somebody, and it might be, take coronavirus, right? And they're like arguing uh, with epidemiologists and microbiologists. Right, right. 
uh, like they're on the same level. It doesn't mean you have to you have to agree with everything that these the quote unquote experts say, but to put yourself on their level uh, is is kind of this disorder or this what uh, what they're talking about to a T. Not able to see my own incompetence about something while not seeing somebody else's competence, but instead seeing myself at least on the same level to them. Uh, man, I see that all over the place. They should just call this the Facebook effect is what they should call it. <laughs> that's, that's not a bad idea. It does go on to say somewhere in here, the Dunning-Kruger effect can be seen in all aspects of life. A study at the University of Wellington showed that 80% of drivers considered being above the average, which, of course, is a statistical impossibility. And then it gives two other categories, how to minimize the Dunning-Kruger effect for our own good, and then also how to behave with people who do not recognize their incompetence or ignorance. So the first one, how do you actually kind of deal with it? They give a few. I mean, these are sort of common sense, but maybe not. Maybe in this current space that we're in now, all the more important. Um, Be at least aware of the existence of this cognitive bias. Leave a space for doubt for the different ways of thinking and doing things. Always express your opinions in respect for the others. No matter how confident you are in your opinion, do not try to impose it. Those are sort of the the bulleted takeaways. Why don't you, with like the minute or so that we have left, Walk us through a little bit uh, with regards to how do we behave, though, with other people who maybe don't recognize some of their own incompetence. Yeah. yeah, it says people who comment sharply and above all without knowing the subject and underestimating the opinions of others create a strong malaise. Our first reaction is usually irritation or getting angry. That's perfectly understandable, but it will not work. Instead, we must learn to keep calm. Remember that it can only hurt you what you give it power what what you consider important. And of course, the opinion of a person who is not expert in the matter uh, and doesn't even know uh, what he or she is talking about. Right. Uh, if you don't want the conversation to go beyond, say simply, I've heard your opinion. Thank you. And close the subject. Avoid phrases like you do not know what you're talking about. Um, honestly, man, it's people like this. And maybe there's people out there going, no, that's you. Because, right, we don't see our own incompetence. But people that come to mind for me, these are some of the first people that I've blocked on Facebook or oh, unfollowed on Facebook because it sure. just irritates me to no level where you want to be like, you're not the smartest person about everything. Right. And, uh, and, and that's okay. That's okay. That doesn't make you less of a person to not be an expert in every subject matter ever. Yep. Yep. And, uh, you know, I, I feel like I have an ability to tell people I, this, I'm above, I'm over my skis on this one. Like you and I do that all the time on the show going like, I don't know. I don't even know if I should be talking about this, but right. Um, yeah. So I, I think this is an opportunity for people to look in the mirror, ourselves included and go, where do I do this? Do I do this? Uh, and what, and do I have the humility to admit to it? Or am I going to stay in my ignorance and my arrogance to say, nope, I'm smarter than everybody at everything. Right. And I think again, just as we're wrapping up this again, accentuates the need for community, right? Like blindness to our own blindness is one of the most crippling aspects of like hyper individualism. We need people to identify blind spots. We're like, Hey, you're trying to merge into that lane right now. I know you can't see that car. There's a car right there. You keep, you keep turning left and you're actually, you're going to hit it. Like we need people in our lives who can see things that we can't see. And I think that's, uh, that's really, really important. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, this was sort of intentional on my part. I want to talk about the importance of being prepared to be wrong and how, in particular, that plays out in our creativity. So that's coming up next here in The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Well, hi, friends. Welcome back to The Common Good. I said that while stretching, so that sounded (laughs) weirdly casual. Oh, 
Thanks, hey, for, thanks for swinging by. When did you get here? <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't see you there. <laughs> Digital audience. Okay. Anyway, if you want, you can find us on Facebook. I would encourage you to check it out, the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post our articles. There's a lot of uh, discussion happening on some of those articles. You can send us messages if you have suggestions for shows or topics or even just want to kind of get our read on something. Uh, my buddy Trav has been sending us a bunch of really yeah. brilliant stuff. Super grateful for him and his influence on this show in particular. You can also find us Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk, 1160hope.com slash the common good. And wherever it is, you get podcasts, liking, subscribing, rating, reviewing, all of that helps us out a whole ton. And uh, if you wouldn't mind, that would really, really bless us and the show. And before we dive into this TED Talk, this clip from a TED Talk about being prepared to be wrong from Sir Ken Robinson, uh, Brian's going to tell you a little bit about something cool happened at the station. Right. During the coronavirus pandemic, we know that many businesses out there have had to unfortunately close their doors or reduce their hours. But we also know that there are still many businesses that are open and serving the public as best they can. So if you own or run a business that's open and operating, we want to help you get the word out. Right now, go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. All one word, 1160hope.com slash open for business. Uh, fill out the brief form and we're going to compile all of that information and share it with our listeners. Uh, it's totally free. No catch. So go to 1160hope.com slash open for business. Spot on, Brian. Okay, so I don't know how big of a TED Talk fiend you are. Um, I can't get enough of them. The TED Radio Hour podcast is one of my favorites. I don't I don't know what it really? is. Yeah, it always just strikes me as so compelling. And there's a guy named Sir Ken Robinson. And if you have any interest, by the way, in learning about creativity, st start with this guy. He's a New York Times bestselling author. He's a TED speaker, he's an educator, and he's a creativity expert, which is that's an incredible title to have. He, I want to play for you just a short clip. It's about three minutes long, and it may not seem like it's geared towards creativity because the clip is called Prepare to be Wrong, but uh, I want us all to listen to it, and then Brian and I are going to respond. I had a great story recently, uh, I love telling it, of a little girl who was uh, in a drawing lesson, she was six, and she was at the back drawing, and the, the teacher said, this little girl hardly ever paid attention. And in this drawing lesson, she did. And uh, the teacher was fascinated. She went over to her and she said, what are you drawing? And the girl said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And the teacher said, but nobody knows what God looks like. And the girl said, they will in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> when, <laughs> when my son was four in England, actually he was four everywhere to be honest, I mean, <laughs> if we're being strict about it, wherever he went, he was four that year, but he was in the nativity play, do you remember the story? No, it was big, it was a big story. Mel Gibson did the sequel, you may have seen it, I don't <laughs> nativity too, but um, James got the part of Joseph, which we were thrilled about. We considered this to be one of the lead parts. Uh, we had the place crammed full of agents and T-shirts. You know, James Robinson is Joseph. Uh, we had... He didn't have to speak, but do you know the bit where the three kings come in? Now, they come in bearing gifts, and they, they bring gold, frankincense, and mare. This really happened. We're sitting there, and they, I think, just went out of sequence. Because we talked to the little boy afterwards and said, you know, are you okay with that? And they said, yeah, why was that wrong? They just switched. I think that was it. Anyway, the three boys came in little four-year-olds with tea towels on their heads, and they put these boxes down. The first boy said, I bring you gold. And the second boy said, I bring you mare. And the third boy said, Frank sent this. 
What these things have in common is that kids will take a chance. You know, if they don't know, they'll have a go. Am I right? They're not frightened of being wrong. Now, I don't mean to say that being wrong is the same thing as being creative. What we do know is, if you're not prepared to be wrong, you'll never come up with anything original. If you're not prepared to be wrong. And by the time they get to be adults, most kids have lost that capacity. Uh, they have become frightened of being wrong. And we run our companies this, by the way. We stigmatise mistakes. And we're now running national education systems where mistakes are the worst thing you can make. And the result is that we are educating people out of their creative capacities. Picasso once said this. He said that all children are born artists. The problem is to remain an artist as we grow up. I believe this passionately, that we don't grow into creativity, we grow out of it. Or rather, we get educated out of it. Okay, Brian, so what did you think? I don't know if you've heard of Sir Ken Robinson or heard his talk before. Or what stood out to you about that? Uh, I have not heard of him, and you have to listen to a guy if he's given the title of Sir, right? Agreed. And so, yep. Amen. Uh, no, I thought that was great, man. And this whole um, idea of being afraid to be wrong and that kids aren't afraid of being wrong and that kids will try a lot more things. Uh, that story of the girl in the drawing class. Uh, no yeah. one knows what God looks like. And the girl replied, they will know. <laughs> yeah, yeah they're, so, they're about to. Yeah. Yep. And so just, it, you know, if so many aspects of our life, Jesus talks about faith like a child, but, but so many aspects where if we could take kind of the mindset of a child, but as we get older, right, we don't want to be wrong. We hedge our bets. We don't want to be seen as foolish. Uh, and as you were pointing out, that probably starts to creep into our ability to try new things and be creative. Right. And so I think this is a great, uh, a great call by him here. And he's talking too about like, we don't learn creativity. We actually unlearn it as we get older. And there's something about, I'm always captivated by like Jesus's interaction with kids and how he says these kids are actually closer to the kingdom than you realize. Like, it's been interesting for me because I'm new to this parenting thing, but my eldest, who's two and a half, like when he makes something, there's no shame at all. Like he just can't wait to show it to me. And like objectively, it's not that good, you know. Like, there's he'll show me stuff, and I'm like, "What am I? What am I looking at?" But he's got such like joy in creating, and then like sharing it with his family. And the more that I'm observing him, the more I realize like what a gift. First off, kids are to us to kind of like yeah. remind us of those things. But also, it's been convicting for me, at least, even just in thinking about how life sometimes sort of beats wonder and awe out of you, you know. And I don't. I'm not blaming any one specific thing. A lot of life is just hard and you're worrying about mortgages and 401ks and food on the table. Like all that stuff's legitimate, but something about kids not being afraid to be wrong. And his, his kind of thesis being, if we're constantly afraid of being wrong, we're never going to come up with anything original. And it's, it's harder because a lot of times in hindsight, you know, we, we celebrate documentaries of geniuses of the past and you're like, well, yeah, that's easy to celebrate because, you know, they figured it out, but what about all the people that tried stuff in their garage that never took off? But I don't know. There's something about linking like the wonder and awe of being like, I've never in my life seen a four-year-old roll over and like hit the snooze button on an alarm before. Like it's always (laughs) like, what's today going to hold? Like they're just, you know, you know what I mean? They're like ready to go after it. And I, uh, I was really encouraged. I was challenged by that in this unique kind of season of quarantine that we're all in. And and I always appreciate people in that. I know friends or family who will, 
uh, unashamedly try new things, right? Try to acquire right. new skills in life and knowing that if they take up cooking, they might burn a lot of things. If they take right. up art, it might be terrible. Uh, so many of us probably try to stick to the very narrowness of what do I know I'm good at? What do mm. I know people won't, you know, pick at me about? I, I do always appreciate people who are willing to just be like, no, I just want to try this. Right. I just want to go down this road and I don't really care what people think because uh, I think that's where we get that's where the kids come in. They're kind of like, I don't care what other people think. Like they don't even have that filter yet. We got, like you said, that gets built in as we go on. Which unfortunately that filter presents itself really early on though. Doesn't it? Like when you, and your kids are older, so you've probably seen this like, wow, you were so free spirited just a year or two ago. And then somewhere something got into your head. And I, I just think at the very least, I know we've been talking a lot about pandemic and coronavirus and quarantine and all that. I thought this was just a, uh, a unique take and something that kind of inspired me. Coming up next, an article out of The Atlantic. Here's the headline. It says, being a parent has made my pandemic life simpler, if you can believe it. We're going to talk about that article coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey, everyone. Welcome to The Common Good. I haven't said happy Friday yet, Brian. Forgive me, right. please. You're forgiven, but it is happy Friday. You got <laughs> wiffle ball plans this weekend or not? No, not no I got rest. Got to rest it back for a couple days still. We got to take it off for a couple days, but I'll See, get back. Say, saying phrases like rest the back, though, makes it sound like you're like an MMA fighter or something, doesn't it? Like, <laughs> I for this thing from an MMA <laughs> fighter. Oh, my gosh. Um, In isolation, though, it sounds cool. Like, oh, I would, but uh, got to rest the back. <laughs> Slept on a weird last night. Um, okay. This, this article was super interesting. Uh, being a parent has made my pandemic life simpler, if you can believe it. But first, why don't you tell us where people can find out more about the show? Yeah, you can find us in all sorts of places. Find well, us on Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. That's where we put up articles that we've uh, talked about on the show and even some things that we don't get to on the show. Uh, and you can interact with other people on there. It's a really fun place where community is, has been built. So mm-hmm. you can go to our Facebook page. Uh, you can go to Twitter. Uh, at Common Good Talk. Same thing at uh, Instagram at Common Good Talk. Find us online at 1160hope.com and our podcast. You can get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Uh, as Ian always says, that helps us. We're not sure how, but it helps us somehow. Uh, so, you know, when you're mowing the lawn this weekend and you're looking for something to, to listen to, how about an old an old podcast of the Common Good? You can do Ooh. that. Uh, this weekend. So all sorts of places that you can find us. Really well done. Also, before we dive into this story, um, I want to talk to you about Thrivent because I just think they're a great organization. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. I've been a Thrivent member for like eight years. But also, if you're looking for a career change right now, and I know a lot of people are, you can head to Thrivent.com slash careers to learn more. Also on Facebook, if you're the Facebook and type, you can go to Thrivent member network dash Chicagoland region. And that's where they're posting all sorts of updates about webinars or things happening sort of specifically in the Chicagoland area. Highly, highly recommend you check them out. It's a great organization. And uh, I've been really blessed by their uh, leadership and their wisdom. And it's made me much wiser with my money. That is for sure. Okay, so the headline reads, being a parent has made my pandemic life simpler, if you can believe it. And then the subheading says, hear me out. So why don't you, <laughs> why don't you uh, get into this story a little bit? Yeah, uh, the author says, perhaps it's a strange effect of being forced to slow down to spend all of one's time outside working, uh, work, uh, 
pootling and pottering rather than actually doing things and seeing people. Perhaps it's the atmosphere, the eerie streets, the cordoned off playgrounds and lines of mass shopper shoppers. Perhaps it's just being a dad with a garden of full shelf of Dr. Seuss stories and a sudden access to Disney's entire back catalog. Whatever it is, something in the air is making a time that should be anxious, monotonous and frustrating, somehow pleasant Hmm. and even meaningful. And so he's going to go off uh, and talk a lot more about that concept that as a parent, uh, he says the irony for him, he says later on in the article, he says the crisis has prompted many to ask big existential questions about their life's purpose. He says the irony for me is that it has taken losing choice to clarify what I want to choose. So he's saying confined and not having a choice of lots of things to do. It's reminded him of the importance of being a father and how much he loves his child. I think it's a three-year-old kid. They've gotten into patterns of doing things. And he's kind of says, you know what? While I don't want to remain in this pandemic and this isolation, that when we go back, there's going to be things that I miss and that there have been some things about this isolation and this simplicity that it is forced upon us uh, that he's saying as a dad, he's really enjoyed uh, versus kind of the hectic speed and everything that we all had when things were, quote unquote, normal. Well, and I, I love what he said here, too. When he said, I'm not yearning for the best restaurants in London or overseas holidays, but family barbecues and nights in the pub with best friends like that to me is a that's a succinct statement. It, it really has for me, the longer that we're in this, it's identified like, oh, I don't actually think I miss the brick and mortar places necessarily, although that's part yes. of it. It's really, really about the people. I was actually having this thought today. So my my wife went out to do some grocery shopping and it was just it was just me and the boys. And it was just, and I love Fridays in general, just because I get to spend a lot more time with them. But we were just like laughing and plan, and we didn't really have a plan. And and again, there is some anxiousness and some cabin fever, especially with the two and one year old. You know, we can't go here, we can't see some of these. But even sometimes, you, I mean, you know this, like loading up a van with a couple of little ones, that in and of itself is like a two hour ordeal. Oh, gosh. Which, yeah. You know, again, I'm grateful for I'm grateful for a van and car seats and kids that actually want to go places. But in some ways, not even having the option to go those places like, oh, I get those two hours back of like, you know, screaming in the car seat or making reservations or again, I'm really looking forward to those things. But like part of what he's saying here is that for a lot of people maybe who are single or don't have kids, the day is just maybe kind of blurring together and just one sort of like work, not work blob. and. I'm I'm appreciate I'm I gotta yeah. be honest. There's we've had some tough days for sure. Um, my wife is a rock star. She's been doing an amazing job with them all day long. But it's been it's been a really interesting kind of perspective keeper for me in the midst of all the chaos. To be honest, yeah. The author says this paradoxical freedom of choicelessness hmm. is even stronger for parents. There's a clean singularity of purpose for a parent in lockdown. Your priorities are clarified. In normal times, weekdays are a blur and weekends are packed with chores, errands and social events scheduled long ago. Many days I felt that the only moment of undistracted time with my son is story time before bed and a movable, unavoidable, simple routine during which distractions are removed, lights dimmed, calm restored, like going to the cinema. And then he says this. My life today is like one long bedtime story. I just mm. love that picture again. Um you know what? There are things that I certainly miss in my own life. There are certain rhythms that I miss. 
in my work life. There are things that my kids miss. And I know that like we, there are things that we're longing for, but I do believe that when, when things get lifted a lot more and we can go back to uh, what might be kind of normal, I think I'm going to, there's, I think I'm going to go, Oh, I do miss uh, all the family time we had or being home every night and eating dinner as a family every night. Like right. uh, there are certainly things that, that I think we can miss. And, and I, I, I don't know for myself, I, it took me a little while to admit that, right? Like mm. you felt guilty going, I don't know, this quarantine has some enjoyable aspects to it. Right. right. Uh, but, but I think I'm trying to embrace those and going, uh, you know, how can we enjoy this time that's been forced upon us? Uh, and then what are the things I want to carry over uh, when it's no longer forced upon us? What have we been reminded of? What do we how do we not just get into that rat race of just going crazy 100 miles an hour all the time? Uh, in some ways, this can serve as a as a great blessing, even though it was forced on us. Well, and that's actually a pretty perfect segue to the end of the article. And I'll just read his last paragraph, too. He says, yep. of course, none of this means that I want the lockdown to continue. I will no doubt take up the first offer of child care whether from grandparents or the child minder we are currently unable to use. My son has just been given a nursery school place for September, and I'm excited to see how he will make new friends and learn new things. I constantly tell people we should meet up once this is all over. I'd love a long child-free lunch with friends or an evening in the pub. Above all, I wish I could see my parents, but I have been surprised by how much I enjoy some of lockdown life. Part of me will miss this sad, strange interlude when it's gone, not the death and destruction but the quiet reflection and new routines. For many of us, it might serve to reveal what we really care about. And I will try not to be quick to forget it. And I thought, man, what a what a helpful, wise perspective. And I would love to hear from parents on this one. This is on our Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. What have been some of the unexpected blessings that you found? What have been the things that you've heard from other parents that have been helpful and sort of like reframing or rethinking about Kind of what he's getting at. Like, I don't I'm not going to miss the death and destruction, you know, and the economic struggle. But there are actually aspects of this that have felt like little blessings. And I think those are worth yes. kind of honing in on a little bit. Absolutely. Well, coming up next, we're going to spend a couple of segments talking about race and the church. And Brian and I are going to do our best to navigate that. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for you life. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk about race in the church, and we'll be joined by Tom DeVries, president of the Global Leadership Network. That's coming up next here on The Common Good. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm, the playing injured Brian Fromm, who I couldn't tell. You don't seem like you're in pain right now. Little less pain, little less pain than yesterday, but still, uh, still, still pain. Going to take it easy this weekend. But uh, I went to the chiropractor today, and he told me you're really inflexible, and that's a problem <laughs> in terms of like literally <laughs> physically inflexible. He's like, you've got incredibly tight hamstrings, and that makes your lower back bad. I'm like, oh, is that a bad thing? Like, should I be working on that? So. You got you got uh, a case of the tight hammies, huh? Well, shout uh, out to chiropractors everywhere, by the way. Yes. My brother is a brilliant chiropractor outside of Detroit. And uh I it feels like a lot of people are really, really appreciating their chiropractors right now with this yep. sort of diminished physical activity. I think uh, a shout out to them is most certainly needed. Yes, um, I went and saw Russ Manny over at IRC Chiropractic. Give him a shout out, but uh I don't think yeah, you're legally allowed to do that, Brian. We're gonna have to 
edit bleep all this out. Sorry. He's a friend of mine. He's a friend of mine. So yes. That makes it worse, I think, Brian. I will be stretching now all the time. That's what I'm going to be. I'm going to have the most flexible hamstrings of any 43 year old going. Please put that somewhere on your pastoral profile. Just (laughs) someone goes to the four corners website. Oh, wow. He's got really flexible hamstrings. Way to go for him. Uh, Before we get into it, you can find us on Facebook, the common good radio show. That's where we post all of our articles, even stuff that we don't always talk about on the show. You can engage there with some dialogue. Also, you can send us messages you have suggestions for the show or interviews or topics we really do appreciate any feedback there you can also review that page and share it with a friend find our podcast wherever you get podcasts subscribing rating and reviewing is super super helpful somehow magically mystically and on twitter and instagram at common good talk and we'll get to this in a second but this is from christianity today just yesterday it says don't look away why ahmad arbery's tragedy must be addressed head-on which is an incredibly important conversation. We're actually going to dedicate this and the following segment to talk about that. But a video that's actually not new, it's just a short, short clip actually from Jane Elliott, who is uh, an internationally known teacher and lecturer and diversity trainer. I've seen the full documentary that this, this comes from, but this one minute clip was so interesting and so convicting for me. Uh, I wanted to share that with you all, get some reactions, and then we'll dive into this article from Christianity Today. I want every white person in this room who would be happy to be treated as this society in general treats our citizens, our black citizens. If you, as a white person, would be happy to receive the same treatment that our black citizens do in this society, please stand. You didn't understand the directions. If you white folks want to be treated the way blacks are in this society, stand. Nobody's standing here. That says very plainly that you know what's happening. You know you don't want it for you. I want to know why you're so willing to accept it or to allow it to happen for others. Okay, so I'm not sure if you're familiar with Jane Elliott at all, Brian, or, no. or have heard any of her work. How did, how did that short one-minute experiment kind of hit you? I mean, it hits you hard, doesn't it? It is, it is really convicting. And, um, you know, for me, when I hear stuff like that, it reminds me of something I've, uh, tried to do in the past of like when she asks, would you trade places with an African American, how they're treated in our country? Um, my first thought is like, I know there's a disparity, but I don't know what it feels like to be an African American, say in Downers Grove or the mm-hmm. Chicago land. Like I should, I've got African-American friends. I should ask them that question that bluntly, just like, what's mm. it like? You know, because when she says that, I know that the answer for most of us is no, probably not from everything I've heard, but I can't give you reasons necessarily why not. Right. Um, and so that does challenge me to go, OK, maybe maybe it's time to, again, ask person X or person Y. Hey, tell me your experience. I want to understand more rather than make assumptions one way or the other of what that experience is. That's a good takeaway, man. The, the thing that I find a little discouraging is that she, you know she's been asking questions like these since the late '60s, and so that it's it's odd how current that short audio clip feels in this particular climate, and yet you know she, she's been banging this drum for a long, long time. It it does it it gives me some sense of like okay, this isn't a new issue, and then also a sense of despondency that. Gosh, how how difficult is this for us to actually really 
interact with, which is why I want to do this article from Christina today. It says, don't look away. Why Ahmad Arbery's tragedy must be addressed head on. In fact, before he gets into the article, it links to uh, another article by a guy named John Richards, who grew up in the same town as Ahmad Arbery. Oh, and, wow. uh, again, I would recommend checking that out as well. That's called The Storm That Won't Get the Last Word. That's a really, really powerful read. Again, this article is on our Facebook page, The Common Good Radio Show. But why don't you get us into this article a little bit here, this one by uh, Andrew McDonald. Yeah. And, and props to Christianity today. They like, you know, yeah. they, they tackle the uncomfortable stuff uh, really well. Uh, so uh, McDonald writes this for many in America, responding to the seemingly endless shootings of African-Americans has become a horrific form of muscle memory. And yet another tragedy like the shooting of Ahmad Arbery occurs. We see similar patterns an initial burst of reporting followed quickly by social media commentary, followed by think pieces across various platforms followed by social media commentary on the think pieces. Within a week, however, the entire matter is tied up nicely and everyone is able to move on. Most of us forget as we return to being engrossed in our lives, only to be thrust back into the cycle when another new shooting is jarring enough to penetrate the blaring noise of our daily news cycle. The fact that Arbery was killed in February and many didn't know it until May speaks to our dependence mm. upon images to incite a response. Mm. Moreover, the fact that only images push us to take seriously these stories underlines the frenetic nature of our media landscape. Uh, the unfortunate truth is that even in our ability to retreat into ignorance, we betray the disparity in our experiences and the injustice in our culture. Uh, while this story, despite being so relevant and discussed currently, will fade for most of us, for others, this story is their experience. They carry it with them when they wonder if it is safe to go to their go on runs in their own neighborhood or even sit peacefully in their homes. They simply cannot be something we accept. This simply cannot be something we accept without a long and faithful fight through prayer, solidarity and using our voices and lives. Uh, to create change as hard mm. as it is in the season of disconnect, mental exhaustion and uncertainty, the church must re-engage and lead their people uh, to re-engage. So we'll stop there. Uh, that is a, that is a bold call. Um, and it's going to lead into the question of like, what does it mean for the church to re-engage? What does that even look like uh, or to engage for the first time? I was going to say for some churches, it's not re-engaging at all. Right, it's using right. to engage. Right. Right. But, but, uh, his raising this bar uh, or not even raise the bar, but his uh, pointing out what the normal life cycle is of the stories for most of us. Uh, yeah. uh, ama uh, not amazed, um, just blown away by what happened, then followed by everybody running the social media to be outraged to then the bigger pieces about it. And then people sharing those pieces and then it eventually goes away. Yeah. Uh, is, is kind of the way this works, but then being reminded that there are people, um, who are facing this day in and day out where they don't have the ability for it to just go away in a cycle. Right. Right. Um, so well done by Christian today. It's a well-written article here by Andrew McDonald. Well, let me, let me just read the way the article ends and yep. fair warning. It's, it's pretty intense. So if that, if that is something that you're not ready for necessarily, then, you know, you might want to fast forward or turn your radio off, but, he says, America has a long history of shocking images forcing us into action, one of the most famous being the funeral image of Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy who was murdered in 1957. While visiting relatives in Mississippi, he was lynched because he reportedly whistled at a white woman. His body was later recovered from the river, brutally beaten and disfigured. 
holding the funeral in Chicago, Till's mother made the decision to have an open casket. In his recent book on the death and legacy of Till, historian Elliot Gorn offered this powerful reflection on what Till's mother did in opening the casket to the world. Turning pain into testimony, Mammy Till Bradley raised a prophetic cry against racism and brutality, and she spoke as the guardian of all children. Above all, she was a witness against evil who compelled others not to look away. Quote, let the people see what they did to my boy. Through iconic photographs of Till's body in the casket, Bradley forced observers, indeed, is still forcing us today to confront the reality of her pain and the system of racism and injustice that caused it. In doing so, Bradley removed from others the facade of feigned ignorance. They could no longer pretend not to know what was going on. They were forced to choose between culpability and evil or to stand against it. Today, we must confront new stories of suffering. Today, we must not look away. We must witness the evil and press into seeing what we don't want to see, thereby removing from ourselves the option of ignorance. God does not look away from the pain and affliction of his people. When we look away or quickly scroll on to the next story, we reveal something at odds between our love and God's, a disconnect between our profession of his indwelling spirit and our own. So, preachers, don't look away but step into this on Sunday. Elders, don't look away, but step into this in the church culture. Teachers, don't look away, but step into this in the classroom. Leaders, don't look away, but step into this in your organizations. Parents, don't look away, but step into this in the home. Begin by listening to the voices of those for whom this is not a momentary experience, but a lived reality. Begin by confronting the cultural baggage that allows for such disparate in the way that we approach stories like these. Begin with prayers of lament and repentance, leading others in the same. It is hard. It will undoubtedly cost us something, but it will lead us to be more like Jesus. Don't look away now or ever. Mm. You're listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins, along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. 1160hope.com slash the common good and wherever it is you get your podcasts wouldn't mind subscribing rating and reviewing all that does really help us out a whole lot and i i wasn't content just simply having one segment dedicated to talking about race today it just it's been really heavy on my heart i know it's been heavy on a lot of people's minds and hearts and we also know that this discussion may stir some emotions you may like passionately disagree with us you may have more questions than answers like bring all of that. We would love to engage with you on Facebook. You can send us a private message if you'd rather do it that way. But uh, per the previous segment, let's not look away. Like let's keep leaning in. Let's not kind of scroll past because I think it's really, really important that we do the hard work of grappling with this. And I want to, I want to read a text thread first and then an article from Missy Alliance. And we talked about this yesterday. Missy Alliance, I think has just been on point as of late. And their article says five ways your predominantly white church can work for racial justice and reconciliation. So that I think is going to be immensely practical for right. a lot of us. But let me read this thread first. It's from, uh, it's from a guy named Mike McHargue, maybe better known by some as Science Mike. And uh, let, me, oh. let me just read his thread and I'll get your thoughts and then we'll dive into the Miss You Alliance article. He says, listen and pay attention when people offer insights born of lived experiences, especially when those insights come from the margins. The work is never to give voice to the voiceless. The work is to support and amplify the voices of those who are erased. This is an essential difference. It helps keep us from centering ourselves 
in someone else's liberation. When you do justice work and miss the mark, be open to feedback and responsive to change. Marginalized people have limited time and energy, and calling you out is an, an expensive investment. Always remember that a new view of injustice is someone else's life. Don't think how you can save them, lead them, or fix things. Instead, focus on how you can come alongside and follow the people already doing the work. The ways I am marginalized does not qualify me to speak for people who are marginalized in other ways. My disability does not qualify me to speak for women or people of color, for example. It is almost always better to spend more time listening and less time reacting. What do you what do you think of that general posture there? I I think the the home run one was that very last one he said there. It's almost always better to spend more time listening and less time reacting. Uh, that's generally true, but also in this specific conversation, listening to people from the margins, people yeah. who have been most affected by things rather than, uh, you know, coming in with my take or what was going to make things better. Well, things that I may not understand. Yes. Uh, it's what we talked about last segment, right? Like when's the last time I've sat down with an African American, American friend of mine and just said, Hey, talk to me about your experience. I don't understand. Yeah. Right. Right. Help me understand. I think that's a great call for life in general. What he said there, but in this particular conversation, more time listening, less time reacting is a wonderful call. Well, and, and what he said earlier, too, about we're not giving voice to the voiceless. They have voices like that's always been one for years that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. And the notion that we do sometimes we tend to and I say maybe predominantly white people and maybe, you know, white men in particular, kind of centering ourselves in the story again, um, that that call to, like, be willing to take a back seat, to listen, to be a learner, a follower. I don't know. I think all of that is really, really helpful, which then leads me to this article out of Missio Alliance. Uh, five ways your predominantly white church can work for racial justice and reconciliation. This is from Rich Velodas, which we we've talked about before on the show. We've never had him on the show before. Uh, right. He took over Pete Scazzera's church. We've thought we've mentioned that before, I think. And just a, a wise, prolific young leader. He's a great follow on Instagram and Twitter. And uh, he wrote this from a very, very uh, important perspective. But I want to I want to get into the five. And then yeah. with whatever time we have left, we can react. The article, of course, is posted over on the Facebook page, the Common Good Radio Show. Why don't you kick us off with number one? Yeah. So, again, what you just said, five ways you can awaken your predominantly white church to racial justice and reconciliation. Number one, you can connect the gospel to the issue of race. Uh, if white churches and leaders cannot make this fundamental connection, no well-meaning strategy will suffice. Mm. The deep trouble the church finds itself in is related to race uh, stems from a bad theology that sees racial justice and reconciliation as optional to the gospel. This point of concern must be regularly repeated in our day. As long as the gospel is reduced to a personal decision resulting in private discipleship and self-centered preoccupation, we will tragically miss the core of the gospel, which is a declaration of Jesus's lordship resulting in a new family called from different places in life. Mm. This fundamental theological perspective has often been, quote, outsourced to people of color. But we are at a point where a theology of the new family of Jesus or in Dr. King's words, the beloved community can't be seen as a specialization as of a theology for people interested in that kind of secondary content. Mm. Uh, the gospel's application to race must be seen as part of the core content for every Christian. That's powerful. And number two, you can preach against racism in all its forms. 
Even in the context of a homogenous community, white brothers and sisters can take their place in preaching against racism. The pulpit, especially in evangelical, charismatic Pentecostal communities, is the primary place of community culture shaping and heart formation. In an increasingly connected world, we're exposed to the social ills of racism on a daily basis. No longer can anyone claim to lack specific information on the reality of racial hostility. The ubiquity of social media and 24-hour news networks have presented a perpetual flow of stories plaguing many lives of people through racist ideology and practices. By preaching against the image-marring racism that impacts people of color, you can proclaim to your congregation the wide-ranging application of the gospel. Sure, some may quizzically look around the room as you preach and wonder whether this has anything to do with them, but by leveraging your preaching ministry to look outside your local congregation— You are living out a deeply gospel value. As Paul says it in Philippians 2, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. That's really good. Number three, you can publicly pray when news of racial injustice surfaces. Mm. This is related to preaching, but creating space in your worship gatherings to pray for healing and reconciliation is a powerful practice in the life of the church. Uh, at New Life, which is his church, we regularly pray for churches and issues plaguing people around the world, whether in Syria or Flint, Michigan. We lift our voices to the Lord in intercession. The practice of public intercessory prayer has always, has a way of forming our hearts, whether through guided prayers or extemporaneous ones. To pray over issues disproportionately impacting people of color is a key discipleship moment and practice in the life of a homogeneous church. You could tell a lot about a church by what a church prays for. That'll, that's a that'll lot. preach. All right, we'll move quickly through these last two. Number four, you can allocate resources to churches and ministries working for racial justice and reconciliation. Generous support towards churches in the trenches of reconciliation ministry expresses a commitment to the gospel in powerful ways. Whether a special offering is collected or a fixed practice of financial support is implemented, supporting churches is a sign that the gospel has not just touched your mind, but the deep places in your heart. Number five, you can learn from non-white leaders in different parts of the country and beyond. After reading this, go to your bookshelf and see how many authors of color you've read. Mm -hmm. Chances are the vast majority of what you're consuming is content created by other white men. Uh, Certainly, this speaks to a larger systemic issue in the publishing world uh, where people of color don't have as much access, opportunity and visibility to write. But the point remains, the theology and stories of white male have been normative. Mm. But this doesn't reflect the theology and stories uh, of countless numbers of people. So reconsider the conferences you attend. Mm. Search for conferences where the majority of people may not be white. Listen to preaching outside of your tradition and don't limit what you can learn from people of color. People of color have much to say beyond matters of race. Uh, That's not all that we offer. And he closes by saying, even if your church is totally or predominantly white, by God's grace, you can live out a gospel of racial reconciliation and justice. See, this is one more reason I love doing this show because I, f- I feel like it forces us to confront with some, you know, some of these writings and blogs and perspectives that have been, for me, really formative and helpful. So uh, that's posted on the Facebook page. We'd love to know what you think. What would you add? What do you disagree with? What would you challenge? We would love for that to be a place for us to have kind of open, honest dialogue about really, really important things. Well, coming up next, Tom DeVries, the president of the Global Leadership Network, is going to share with us some of his perspective on leadership in the midst of a pandemic. That's coming up next here on The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. 
Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. My name is Ian Simpkins along with Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook, The Common Good Radio Show. That's where we post all of our articles and you can send us messages there. You can also find us at 1160hope.com slash The Common Good on Twitter and Instagram at Common Good Talk and wherever it is you get your podcasts. If you wouldn't mind taking just a brief moment, subscribing, rating, and reviewing, that would help us out a whole lot. And it has been such a joy these last couple of months sort of navigating this new reality to be able to have a whole host of really interesting people on the show, people that in some cases we've never been able to meet before. But through the magic of technology, we are joined right now by Tom DeVries, president of the Global Leadership Network. Welcome to the show, sir. Hey, thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. Great to be able to uh, be with you today and to talk a little bit about leadership and the stuff that's going on in this current environment. Well, that I think is such an important conversation, regardless of whatever level of leadership any of our listeners find themselves at. Before we dive into that, though, would you just introduce yourself to our audience? Love to do it. Been uh, the president of the Global Leadership Network that produces the Global Leadership Summit for about three years now. Uh, before that was the head of a denomination with about 1,100 churches in both the U.S. and uh, Canada. Uh, also have been a church planter and a multi-site large church pastor mm. and uh, was the head of our denomination, too, as far as a church multiplication revitalization. So certainly uh, love and have a passion for leadership uh, and especially within the church context. Mm. And uh, the first summit I went to was in 1996 myself. Wow. And it's been something that's influenced and impacted me personally and uh, love to be a part of what's going on by the way of family. Uh, my wife, Laura, and I uh, live in the Chicago area, and we have uh, three kids, two in California and one in Michigan. That's amazing. So, Tom, uh, I did see uh, that you were actually quarantined. Was it in Germany because you came in contact with someone who was COVID-19 positive? I'm curious, what was that like? And maybe did you even learn some stuff while you were in quarantine? Yeah, Brian, that was a pretty crazy story because this was way back at the end of February before any of this was beginning to heat up. And we had a global leadership summit over in Germany in Karlsruhe. And uh, we had an arena with about 7,400 people that were in it. And then we had 13 uh, additional sites that had uh, 3,000 people. So over 10,000 people participated in the summit. And it was going Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. And on Wednesday night, we kind of gather all the leaders and do dinner together. And so we did that that Wednesday night. Craig Rochelle uh, was a part of that. Daniel Strickland uh, as well. Uh, Also, uh, Maculay Ilabagiza, who's one of the speakers who's been at the summit previously. And uh, what ended up happening is one of the additional speakers ended up going to the hospital that night with 104 degree fever Mm, and uh, ended up testing positive for COVID-19. And uh, we ended up finding that out on Friday. We had to shut the conference down early, which is uh, tough. How do you do that in ways that, uh, again, it show leadership and uh, are not risky and also provide security. Mm. And then we were informed by the German authorities that we had to stay in Germany 14 more days. And uh, so, so there were six of us that ended up in Hanover. I, 
I was with uh, my colleague Gary Schwamlein, and we were uh, at the home of one of the board members of uh, the Global Leadership Network there in Germany and his wife, and then another couple uh, from Australia. And uh, we got to spend two weeks together. And it, wow. it was, I mean, very early on when not a lot was known about COVID-19, uh, to go through that experience and reflect on uh, leadership, reflect on your own mortality, mm. uh, have lots of wondering and uh, see what worry would look like as you stare it in the face. Uh, it was quite the experience. I, I can't even imagine. I, I'm wondering, too, for anyone listening, they're thinking, okay, but that's that's a pretty unique story. Having now lived through that, do you have any uh, suggestions for people, maybe leaders specifically, things that you learned in that experience that we, we could apply right now, this week, this month, as we sort of look forward to a, an unknown future? Yeah, you know, it, it gave me a lot of opportunity for journaling and reflecting on leadership. And uh, Craig Rochelle, who'd been a speaker there, was flying home when he was informed that he'd been exposed. He ended up having uh, to spend two weeks in quarantine in uh, Oklahoma, and we texted each other back and forth every day to say, what's your experience like? What's mm. your experience like? And I remember writing in my journal uh, just two words on about the first or second day, and they were the words, uh, plans disturbed. Mm. And uh, and I thought, how amazing, really, that you know I had plans to go over there, was going to be over there in three or four days, come back and uh, jump right back into all the great leadership stuff that we're doing at the Global Leadership Network. And all of a sudden, the, those plans were disturbed. And I remember that great verse in Proverbs 19.21, where it says, many are the plans in a person's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. And mm. I really said, how can that happen? Uh, in this situation. And uh, there are a couple notes that I made out of that about leading in a crisis. And the, the first thing I wrote down is, is the need to stay grounded, hmm. uh, that really we have to be able to lead and leaders lead out of their own faith and belief. Uh, and when they encourage people to have faith over fear, that's something that they have to have experienced uh, themselves. I think about Moses at the burning bush and his encounter with God there that became such a faith foundation as he began to move forward and lead uh, the children of Israel out of Egypt. And so this idea of just staying grounded in your faith uh, in the midst of all that's going on around you that's uncertain and unknown. The second thing was uh, really about how do you inject and inspire hope? And so very early on, before the stay-at-home stuff, I was already speaking to my staff here in Chicago and mm -hmm. uh, trying to inject and inspire hope with regard to them, not knowing how it was going to impact uh, our work and our ministry. We're in a 130-plus uh, countries. We translate the summit uh, into 60 different languages, and we were in the heart of our international season. And we were beginning to see things postpone and cancel. And how do you inject hope into that situation? And uh, really, it was great to be able to just kind of reflect on and share the stories of how God was still working and we could still have hope, mm. hope even if things looked hopeless. And then mm. two more things real quick. One is to execute and engage. I think sometimes people can get paralyzed in crisis situations and yeah. uh, you really look and you say, it's not a time to sit on the sidelines. It's really a time to see the problems, to make the decisions and act mm -hmm. and to be able to do that with uh, your team and people around you effectively. And then the last one was to is to really let your courage be contagious. Uh, Billy Graham said, when someone braves takes a stand, the spines of others are often stiffened. Mm. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, I think that, you know, really, again, for leaders, uh, how do you let your courage uh, be contagious? And it goes back to, and you kind of see the connection into that staying grounded uh, and being able to see your faith be connected yeah. uh, to the one who really can be depended on in these situations. That's, That's great. Good. What would you say, Tom, to specifically the leaders out there, business leaders, pastors, whatever it might be, who just feel discouraged that they feel like life's on pause right now or so much has changed that they're really kind of battling some discouragement right now? Yeah. And it's it's so often easy to do that, and especially when you look down and in as opposed to up and out and mm-hmm. out. And when you're focused on uh, really what are the problems or what are the challenges more than what are the opportunities. And one of the things that I've really appreciated uh, hearing Craig Rochelle talk about is that these are really uh, unprecedented, unexpected problems, but they mm. also bring unprecedented opportunities. Mm. Uh, and that's the kind of environment that we're in. And we have the opportunity to look one way or the other and to use one of those things or allow one of those things to be more overwhelming in our life. Uh, and we can make that choice. And you need to look and say, okay, what does God have for us in this moment? What mm. are the opportunities out there for us to be able to uh, share the gospel, to be able to grow personally or grow our organization mm. in some way. Tom, that's really, really helpful. As we're wrapping up, where can people go to connect with you or to learn more about global leadership? Is are there websites or email addresses that you would recommend people check out? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, you can go to globalleadership.org and uh, find information about the Global Leadership Summit. Uh, we have some great, great speakers that are going to be teaching on leadership this year on August 6 and 7. Uh, it might be a little bit different when we yeah, had uh, right. hundreds of in-person gatherings in the past. Uh, we're pivoting to be uh, highly digital uh, mm-hmm. as well. And But uh, there'll be Craig Rochelle will be there, T.D. Jakes, Marcus Buckingham, Nona Jones. It'll be a great time awesome. uh, to be able to just kind of experience your own growth and your own leadership challenge uh, over those couple of days. That's incredible. You've been listening to Tom DeVries, president of the Global Leadership Network. I would certainly encourage you to go to globalleadership.org to learn more. And uh, Tom, we're so grateful for you and for your leadership and influence here in Chicagoland. Thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks, Ian. Thanks, Brian. Absolutely. It's a pleasure. You've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Hey everyone, welcome back to The Common Good. That wacky music means only one thing, that we have foolishly decided to end the show the way that we do every single day. Stories that we've not read, sound effects we have not heard. Before we do that, though, a couple of quick things. Find us on Facebook, especially if you're just hopping on the radio. We have a podcast and a Facebook page, and any interaction there really does help out the show a whole lot, plus Instagram and Twitter at Common Good Talk. And then lastly, I want to mention again, Thrivent. So Thrivent Financial has been a really big part of my life the last seven years. You can learn more at Thrivent.com. But also, if you're looking for a career change, this might be the right opportunity. Thrivent.com slash careers is where I want to encourage you to go. And you don't even need to have a background in finance at all. If you just have an entrepreneurial drive or you like helping people, Thrivent.com slash careers is the place to go. And with that, we are ready to dive into our interweb insanity. Why don't you kick us off, Ryan? A lot of international stories this week. So the first one's out of the Netherlands. Police are investigating loose camel report, but find escaped emu instead. Wow. 
Police in the Netherlands said officers responding to reports of a loose camel end up capturing an emu running wild through the city of Rotterdam. Uh, Central Sheeland police said a call came in Friday morning reporting a camel with two humps was wandering loose uh, in the Kiataweg area of Rotterdam. <laughs> Responding officers could find no trace of a camel, but ended up capturing a, lease, a loose emu. Small difference, police joked on Twitter. Officials said they are still investigating whether it's possible that a camel was also on the loose in the area. If I had a million dollars, if I had a million dollars, well, I'd buy you an exotic pet, yep, like a llama or an emu. That's so funny because it makes me think of when we go for walks. My boy is like really into animals right now, uh-huh. but like he just points at anything and is convinced it's a moose or a <laughs> that's great eagle. He's like, "Oh, eagle!" I was like, "Nah, it's a stick, buddy." That's <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. All right, this one's out of New Mexico. Teen turns in bag of cash, gets rewarded with job offer. See, Brian, it actually sometimes pays off to turn in the bag of cash. Sure. Uh, Albuquerque teenager Jose Nunez Ramirez wants to work in law enforcement and his actions after finding a bag of cash near an ATM definitely didn't do his career prospects any harm. The 19-year-old community college student tells CNN that he went to the Wells Fargo machine Sunday morning to get cash so he could buy socks for his grandfather. He says he spotted a clear plastic bag on the ground containing a foot-long stack of $50 and $20 bills. He called police and turned the money over to the police. Uh, police say the bag containing $135,000 had been left there accidentally by a Wells Fargo uh, subcontractor filling the ATM. Oh, my gosh. Nunes was honored at the Albuquerque Police Academy Thursday where uh, Mayor Tim Keller. Hey, what? <laughs> Mayor, is he mayor somewhere else? Sheriff Joked John that, Piper. <laughs> yeah, Joked that even he would have been tempted to take just one of those bundles off the top. A genuine all-American hero. All right. he's That kid's a better person than I am, though. We've decided that. <laughs> I mean, everybody was already thinking it, Brian. You've admitted multiple times on this show that you would not only take the money, but you'd encourage your children to do the same. Is that so wrong? <laughs> Do I really? Okay. <laughs> Next one's out of Iowa. Man receives postcard mailed 33 years earlier. An <laughs> Iowa man who received a postcard from his sister said he was surprised to note that the card had been mailed in 1987. Paul Willis, a hog farmer in Thornton, said a postcard appeared in his mailbox recently from his sister, Annie Lavelle, and he soon noticed the cardboard picture of Lavelle on a Grand Canyon hike in 1987 and a San Francisco postmark from December of that same year. Willis said the postcard bore a second postmark from April 29th of this year, so he called the post office to get an explanation. She said, uh, well, the post offices are all going through deep cleaning because of COVID-19. The employee said the postcard may have been discovered while furniture and machines were being moved for cleaning. An (laughs) Illinois woman experienced a similar incident in July of 2019 when a postcard showed up at her home that had been mailed 26 years earlier. When you control the mail, you control information. I mean, this is like a perfect example of like you had one job, right? Yes. (laughs) 
All right, out of California, wine company sets up hotline for fed up moms to vent their frustrations about 2020. <laughs> it says, let's face it, most people are over 2020 with millions of children cooped up at home under lockdown amid the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. It's likely no one is looking forward to it all being over more than moms are. That's why one wine company has set up a hotline for frustrated moms to let out their anger and even turn their rage into a chance to win free wine. So go ahead and write this number down. one 833 Three scream for wine. That's too many numbers, isn't it? <laughs> yes. One eight three 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 scream for wine is an open hotline for fed up moms to, uh, set up by Movo, which is a company that produces low calorie wine spritzers. Have you been drinking? I'm not drunk. Quickly writing that number down on my hand. Uh, the not next quickly. one's out of California. Man jumps into wine truck. We have a theme going here. Man jumps onto onto wine truck, climbs underneath to drink from Valve while flying down the highway. This can't be real. A man from Modesto, California, was arrested after he reportedly jumped on a big rig transporting red wine, climbed underneath the moving truck to drink the wine from a valve at the bottom of the vehicle. The man, identified as Gabriel Moreno, was driving in a sedan and was con- and convinced the driver of the truck to pull over by placing on his hazard lights. In a dash cam video taken by the Cherokee Freight Lines truck and shared by CBS Sacramento, the man is seen getting out of his car in his under in his underwear and then running toward the truck. In another clip, the man is seen climbing on the back of the truck and then underneath it as it travels up Highway 99. The truck driver reportedly noticed the tank losing fluids and called the highway patrol and responded and discovered Moreno holding onto the underbelly of the truck, drinking the red wine pouring out from the tanker, about a thousand gallons of the wine were lost on the freeway. A rich, wow. full-bodied wine, sensibly priced at a dollar a jug. And now for a little magic, I will make this jug disappear. Well, how is that for a segue into Mother's Day weekend? Uh, <laughs> I mean, in all honesty, though, a very, very special shout out to all the women out there. Some are celebrating, some are grieving. At the very least, though, please know that we are so, so grateful for you. And we hope that the weekend is wonderful for all of you. Thank you so much for joining us all this week. We hope you'll join us next week from 4 to 6 p.m. each and every day. For Brian Fromm, my name is Ian Simpkins, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life.